Welcome to Stuff You Can't Say with Jazz Piano, one Aussie musician's leash-free zone for unruly opinions. This is Emma Stevenson. Dr. Sandy Evans is an internationally renowned composer and saxophonist with a passion for improvisation and new music. She was awarded the Australia Council Fellowship in 2017, the Churchill Fellowship in 2014, and the Order of Australia Medal in 2010 for her contribution to Australian music. She has played with and written for some of the most important groups in Australian jazz since the early 1980s, toured extensively in Australia, Europe, Canada and Asia, and been featured on over 40 albums. She leads the Sandy Evans Trio and Sextet, and co-leads Clarion Fracture Zone and Just 8. Right now you are listening to an excerpt of Just 8's 2007 album, Kaleidoscope. She is also a member of MARA, the Catholics, the Australian Art Orchestra, and 10-part Invention. Sandy has an extensive composition portfolio and has received many commissions from leading jazz, improvising, and new music ensembles. Recent commissions include a suite in honour of legendary Australian saxophonist the late Bernie McGann and a CD, Rock Pool Mirror, based on photographs by Tall Poppy's Belinda Webster. Sandy has a keen interest in Indian classical music, inspired largely by Mridangam virtuoso Guru Karyakudi Mani. She collaborates regularly with Sydney-based Indian musicians Sarangan Sriranganathan and Bobby Singh. She began collaborating with Anish Pradhan and Shubha Mudgal during a Churchill Fellowship visit to India. In 2014, Sandy was awarded a PhD from Macquarie University for practice-based research in Carnatic jazz intercultural music. Sandy is an experienced teacher, having lectured in jazz and composition at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and UNSW. She also inaugurated a jazz improvisation course for young women run annually by the Sydney Improvised Music Association. I am here with Sandy Evans. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Sandy. Thank you very much for inviting me, Emma. I'm thrilled. It's my pleasure. So, um, I always have trouble trying to figure out what the best question is to ask at the beginning of the interview. So, I'm sorry if this one is particularly difficult, but I'm wondering how you think of your music in terms of how it relates to the word jazz and the history of jazz and what other sort of influences um, come into your music making? Hmm. No, that's a great question and something I've thought about a lot. So for me, in my musical practice, I think of jazz as a process rather than a genre. Mm -hmm. And it's the process of spontaneous group improvisation that has a strong rhythmic focus. And, um, and I think it's also a spirit and mm. an energy and that's very significant to me. So I have been um, interested in many, many different types of music, as you know, um, and that all feeds into my musical practice. And sometimes um, sometimes what I do, I wouldn't put under the umbrella of jazz at all. Mm -hmm. um, but still, I would say um, the, the history, the spirit, the philosophy, and even the musical materials and approaches of jazz are hugely important in the way I think about everything. Mm -hmm. um, when I was um, much 
uh, probably in my 20s when I was in a very exploratory phase of trying to figure out how all these, you know, diverse pluralistic influences could converge in my practice and how I could make my way through them. Um, it was actually being in New York that mm-hmm. did help me come to the realisation that jazz... Um, as, as a saxophonist and also as an improviser, that jazz music was the kind of thing that I wanted to make my home base mm-hmm. from which I would um, branch out mm-hmm. into everything else. Um, and I think I still feel that way even, but it, it is very much, as I say, an interpretation of jazz that some people would not necessarily agree with. Um, oh, really? <laughs> I'd like to know who those people are. Well, I don't know who those people are particularly, but as you know, there's a lot of contention around, you know, the word jazz yes. and how widely it should be um, applied to musical styles and um, cultures. Mm. And, mm. Um, I mean, I'm not particularly interested, I suppose, in, um, in you know, making... Um, statements about that I just know that I love so many great jazz musicians and they are um, you know sort of spiritually and in terms of how I approach and play my instrument how I approach the concept of music making they probably are my primary sort of home base yeah yeah so it's um it's kind of like an attitude that kind of marries all these different people together rather than like the actual necessary like this the genre specific sounds that they're making it's more like the way that they go about making music is that right yes I think that that's a a, probably a good summary of it yeah I mean in some cases it is the specific sounds oh yeah and um but not not always that certainly doesn't doesn't sort of transmute through all of the all of my musical activities Mm -hmm. so you know you also asked about what other um, musics have or do feed into my practice and um, there are many of those. Mm. Um, I'm a bit of a glutton. <laughs> I think I'm a, Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> I just, and I, I think I'm fairly typical of my generation and yours is maybe even more so, I'm not sure, but mm. certainly for my generation, um, you know, we were we had access um, you know, to a wide variety of recordings and it was so exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, I think also um, the other thing that's been important for me is meeting other musicians. So mm-hmm. often I've um, become interested in a music because of meeting a musician who plays that music. So mm-hmm. that's why I think um, I'm also fairly typical of of my generation because we lived in a time where like a city like Sydney is becoming, um, you know, quite culturally diverse. Mm. So I, I met um, an incredible Japanese koto player, Satsuki Odomura. Uh-huh. I met her not long after she moved to Australia actually and I've had, um, you know, a long association with her. So that's one thing that's um, influenced me a lot. Mm-hmm. I've met Bobby Singh, the tabla player, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, both of these people are very close friends mm-hmm. and people I share a lot of music-making activities with. So he, through him, the sort of door into Indian music opened. Um, mm-hmm. I also met Roger Dean, 
mm-hmm. um, who is another like at a totally different area of music making but um, has been a huge influence on me as well in terms of um, free improvisation, Mm -hmm. um, computer interactive improvisation and electronics. Um, So, you know, just between those three people there's this huge range of musical interactions and that's, you know, Mm. just a sort of small cross-section of the areas of music that I've um, found myself engaging with and being interested in. Mm -hmm. Well, this um, blends quite nicely into my next question, which you have already partially answered, but I was going to ask, who were your greatest mentors and are your greatest mentors and what is it about them that um, you cherish so much in terms of how they help you to make music or what they've taught you as a musician? Yes, I was terrified of this question because <laughs> I really... <laughs> no, it's, it's only because I would really like to acknowledge so many oh, people yeah, hundreds of people there yeah. really are hundreds thousands probably yeah, of people of and it's hard as soon as you mention one you go well wow well, yeah but what about them <laughs> what about them what about them i feel incredibly blessed yeah. that i've just uh, i think it's one of the things i treasure most about being a musician mm. is the amount of extraordinary mentors i i have and still have mm. that means the world to me so I mean going back away um my saxophone teacher Tony Buchanan mm-hmm. was very significant for me um as was the bass player Bruce Kale so Bruce was one of the first people who taught me about improvisation he'd um recently returned from a very successful career in America where he'd also studied with um George Russell who's mm-hmm. very much into the Lydian chromatic concept mm-hmm. and um so those two were really important to me actually early on before I went to the conservatorium in sort of giving me some some training. Then while I was at the conservatorium, Roger Frampton was a huge influence and he continued to be through, um, you know, through our work together in Tempan Invention. Mm. Um, and Paul McNamara also. Paul, um, Paul was the most and now, interestingly, he's sort of taken Roger's place in Ten Party Mention. Uh-huh. And Paul um, is one of the most extraordinary teachers. I've heard many people say that, yep. actually. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, really, he really was. He's not teaching anymore now. See, see the creativity in each person and um, just say the right thing to help them figure out what they needed in terms of their musical development or their language or their maybe it was an emotional issue or never in a heavy way just always um you know to be able to direct the individual and the group Mm. to their next um point of discovery Mm. such an incredible guy Mm -hmm. so those were some you know important early people and that like I said heaps of others then um you know, all, really all the band leaders I've worked with, uh-huh. you know, have been um, mentors, I would say. You know, people like Paul Grabowski, Lloyd Swanton, um, John Poche, mm-hmm. and um, then my two sort of co-band leaders in Clarin Fracture Zone, Alistair Spence and Tony Gorman, mm-hmm. all these people. Um, other significant people for me, I think, would be Miroslav Bukowski mm-hmm. and also James Greening. James um, continues to sort of teach me a great deal. Mm-hmm. And then um, um, in terms of the – so I'd already mentioned Roger, um, Roger Dean, who's mm-hmm. been a mentor in a different sort of a way, equally significant though, um, and Satsuki. Um, 
and Bobby Singh and in particular um, Adrian Sheriff. Mm-hmm. So Adrian's a um, bass trombonist from Melbourne. Uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist. He's um, largely responsible for me getting interested in South Indian music. Mm-hmm. He Which plays Rudangam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and through him, I met his guru, Guru Karakudimani, who was also a big mentor for me. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so there's... it's hard to list everyone. <laughs> yes, it is. It's verging on impossible. Um, of course. But there's there's yeah. a few a few people who've been very significant. I'd say the other one is probably um, Judy Bailey, because mm, um, Judy, yeah. I just am totally. She blows my mind, Judy. Mine as well. <laughs> Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah, Yeah. she certainly is. She's Mm -hmm. like a musical genius, I think. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and such a sort of um, innovator and Mm -hmm. also um, what incredible, um, you know, enthusiasm, perseverance and capacity to mentor people as well. And, yeah. Yeah, I can say the same thing about Judy. I think if it weren't for Judy, I never would have approached jazz piano as an option. Right, <laughs> so right. I don't right. I think I owe it all to Judy in yeah, some way. So. Yeah. So I yeah. wanted to ask you, I mean, unless you want to keep on listening. One more, <laughs> which is Adrian McNeil, who is okay. my PhD supervisor. <laughs> cool. Okay. Mm. Um I wanted to ask you more about your time in India and um what it is that fascinates you about Indian music and how that's impacted your um, approach to making music in general. Mm. So um, <clears throat> the the first thing that I always sort of just like to clarify in this discussion is, mm. um, number one, I am no expert. <laughs> um, I am a tiny baby sure. in Indian music. I haven't quite even got to kindergarten. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, and the second thing is um, that. Um, the sort of term Indian music is, um, of course, we have to use it, mm. but it's even more troublesome than jazz. Too, too broad. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, of course. India okay. is like, you know, thousands of musical cultures. Yeah. Um, and two main um, so-called classical systems, Hindustani mm. and Carnatic, which are poles apart in many ways. Um, I mean, they do they do have some overlapping um elements but any musician from either tradition would um would sort of um not you know would well and truly recognize the the difference so um my um my in terms of a formal sense I've um I've only studied South Indian music. And I forgot to mention one of my main mentors, which is Sarangan Sri Ranganathan. Mm-hmm. He's the sitar player and singer in Sydney who I've studied with. Mm-hmm. Um, he's unbelievable. Um, then in North India, um, I have through Bobby. So um, I have a connection with um, Anish Pradhan and Shubham Woodgull, who have also become mentors. Mm. <laughs> More mentors, the better. Um, so um, my experiences with each system are actually quite different. So what drew me to each one is also quite different. So right. with South Indian music, um, it's primarily the rhythmic aspect mm-hmm. of it that um that drew me in and um 
So through the collaborations that the Australian Art Orchestra have done over time with Guru Karakudimani, I've got to know him. And I've also got to see the ways that um, the Australian musicians who were also interacting mm-hmm. with him have taken some of those ideas and developed them. So, I mean, in particular... Um, Scott Tinkler mm. and Adrian Sheriff, who I mentioned earlier, and the drummer Adam King. Mm. Um, each, and Alistair has also, Alistair Spence. Um, and I think all the musicians who've been part of that project has been influenced in it by some way, but those people I sort of have had more to do with in terms of how the rhythmic thinking has helped them. Mm. So for me, um, I had a very um, important moment where... We were on tour um, with a horn section, which was um, B.V. Balasai, um, amazing flute player, um, Scott Tinkler, Adrian Sheriff and me. And um, for me, that was a very um, important experience because things I've been searching for as a musician, um, all... Each one of them showed me different answers that I was looking for through how they played, not through mm-hmm. what they said. Um, and it sort of came back to the fact that I had always been interested in modal music, among other things. I loved the feeling of just playing in a mode. Mm-hmm. And so that was a natural, it was natural for me to enjoy Indian music, I think, because it's all based, you know, in a very, very sophisticated and rich and beautifully nuanced way mm-hmm. in um raga mm-hmm. and raga is not the same as modal music by any means there's many many other elements to raga that that aren't part of modal music but um for someone interested in mode there's a sort of natural attraction mm-hmm. but what i'd found often um when i was playing modally was um i might like I found I wanted more structure. Mm. And I think, you know, in a jazz context, of course, the harmonic form will give you structure. Mm. Um, in a modal context, um, without, the, without the sort of rhythmic structure of a, of a tala, which is the sort of Indian way of structuring rhythmic cycles, um, I was beginning to feel just a bit directionless right. and thinking, okay, I, I want to have, I want to be able to command a length of time better than I can, and to be able to do that independent of, of a harmonic sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, each of those players that I mentioned, so Balasai in a Carnatic way or South Indian way, um, Adrian. It's hard to sort of say Adrian can do anything, so <laughs> I wouldn't want to pin him down to one thing. Um, and then Scott, of course, in his own um, sort of very virtuosic um, in, and, um, you know, contemporary mm. sense had each developed this incredible mastery of rhythmic language mm. on a wind instrument. Mm. And this was the key thing because... I'd, I'd always been interested in rhythmic ideas and I'd, I'd hung out quite a lot with Greg Sheehan, another mentor. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> um, um, and, um, and then, you know, with Karakudimani and then... Um, but, you know, and I'd, so I'd sort of get into all this cool rhythmic ideas and maybe I'd be able to clap them and say them and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd think, oh, that's so cool. Mm. But then I'd go to play and... What do I do, you know, and how do I make melody out of that? Uh That was the missing link for me. Mm -hmm. What do I do to make melody work here? And so it was that quest Mm -hmm. 
to sort of develop the rhythmic side of my playing but related to melody and related to how I would think about structure mm-hmm. that um, really sort of I got so excited <laughs> about the possibilities that um, the training in South Indian music gave me for, for those um, ideas. Cool. So I'm still, I still feel like I'm totally at the beginning of that journey and it's, um, it's, oh, it's just That's so exciting. That's a good exciting. sometimes. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's great. I mean, the older I get, the more I feel I'm at the beginning and, and it is exciting. I don't feel intimidated by it. You know, mm-hmm. I think when I was younger, I was a bit more like, oh, oh I'm never going to get this, yeah. you know, but then as you get older, you go, wow, this is really fun. And right. um, tomorrow I might even be able to do that, <laughs> that tiny little bit I can't do today. Just accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I remember... Um, I might be paraphrasing or using not the right word, but I was playing um, some music with you, I think, last year, and I think you said something like the attention to detail um, in the the Indian musicians that you had been mentored by. um, It was something, it was either the accuracy or the attention to detail was something you found really exciting. I can't remember what your exact phrase was, but um, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that idea. Yes, totally, totally. And... um, so that's um, that's true both in rhythm and in melody, mm. and um, um, so there's two two parts to that answer. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll answer the I'll answer that question first. Then I want to go backwards okay. <laughs> a tiny bit and just talk about the the attraction to the melodic side sure. of Indian music, which relates to this question. Mm-hmm. So um, the thing that um, well. Another thing that blew my mind as I delved into Indian music just this tiny bit was um, the micro detail of sometimes it's called gamaka or like in a Western sense you call it ornamentation, but um, but it's it's not even quite the same as ornamentation. It's like there's a whole world that exists <laughs> that we don't even we we just kind of I'm not saying we meaning jazz musicians don't don't sort of have this attention to phrasing because we do but but there's not this um whole um history mm. of vocabulary and feeling and um mm. context around it the way there is in indian music mm-hmm. so for example a certain type of ornament to a a very you know a trained Indian musician will tell that that listener um, a lot about a what raga that person is playing, who they learned from, oh, you know wow. where they come from, um, oh, all all this all this information uh-huh. being that one little ornament, um, and um, lear- trying to learn that when you haven't grown up with it is really hard actually, because um, you need the sort of enculturation to listening to how it sounds. Um, but there is this huge amount of detail mm-hmm. about. Um, intonation about um, the sort of the the rate that the ornament occurs, the which notes it touches, and in what sort of a rhythm, and mm-hmm. all sorts of really incredible things. So it's great for sort of just fine tuning your ears and yeah. um, becoming a little more sensitive to um, you know to the expressive power. Of, of phrasing mm-hmm. um so yeah totally and funnily enough I had a, a really great experience 
not to do with Indian music, but to, on a similar thing. I was thinking about that um, relationship this morning. So um, I've just finished writing um, four pieces for Koto Ensemble. And the Koto also, you know, has an um, incredible timbral range. And um, I'm not a Koto player, but I've played a lot with Satsuki, so I have some sense of the of the sounds. Mm. But um, so the bass, one of the bass Koto players in the ensemble has been um, sending me little videos. It's just of this one bar section. It's really, it's a simple thing. It's just like um, semi, semi two semitones apart, but, and the rhythm's just da, da, ya, da, ya, da, ya, ya. But I wanted just to get across how I wanted that played and also how the, um, to try to bring out the dissonance of the two semitones. Mm -hmm. So, just this morning, it was it was great. I was um, and I was thinking the fact that she sent me all these recordings of her playing it in all these different ways, mm. and um, it was the 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 sort of that attention to detail was also a big part of the koto music, mm. you know, where the actual sound quality and the attack and um, you know the texture and everything is is mm. incredibly important. Do you find? Um, the Western notation system inadequate for trying to oh, communicate completely. that level of detail. Yeah, oh, <laughs> it's extremely difficult. I mean, with yeah. Indian music, you don't even try because right. it's not a notated. They have a notation system that was developed in the uh, last century, mm-hmm. but it's um, they only really use it as to to jog their memories. Mm-hmm. So um, I I, kn- I know how to use it in Indian music, just but it's. There's so much information that's just not um, a part of of what's on the page mm-hmm. in the in transmitting Indian music. You would never ever. It's the total opposite of the sort of Western classical concept of everything having to be mm. notated. The Koto musicians do read Western notation, even though they have their own notation system. Um, and and they use a lot of Western symbols, like they they talk about Bartok pits, for example. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> and they do it. It sounds great on the koto. Um, but so they've borrowed a lot more from Western classical music. Mm. Um, but in oh, Western notation's totally inadequate for. You could say it's also yeah. inadequate for trying to transcribe. Um, like jazz improvisation. Well, that's as well. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is. Yeah. yeah. So just quickly, the other element that I was attracted to in Indian music, as I, I sort of mentioned it, but is um, is the way that the music makes you feel, mm. and the fact that um, in raga, um, the f- they, I mean, they have they have all sorts of taxonomy for. Um, what the feeling of a particular raga should be like a lot of things in in a sort of musicological sense there's um some people who disagree Mm -hmm. (laughs) um there's this but there's this concept of rasa which you may have heard of um and rasa you know like you hear of it in um cooking Mm -hmm. so it's like a sauce or a flavor or Mm -hmm. an emotion my (laughs) phd supervisor um adrian neil who's a extraordinary sarod player and also a very good sort of scholar in indian music he talks about this a lot and he's even done shows where he cooks as Mm -hmm. well as and explains his cooking and explains music in terms of his cooking yeah it's really great and it's i love thinking like about music like that Mm -hmm. so 
so each raga has a rasa and the thing this is so beautiful the people who go to a concert are called the rasikas <laughs> they're the ones who are affected by mm. the emotion wow so there's a real it's, sense of being accountable to the audience and it's it's like yeah. the audience is part of them yeah the that's process. right that's right and that's great. and the feeling of of the music is um is so I just find it so deep and beautiful and profound. Mm. And, I mean, I think that's also what I find in Coltrane. That's what mm. sort of got me, lured me really deeply into jazz, mm. even though the feeling that he plays is quite different mm. from the Indian feeling. Even though he was interested in, in Indian music, he, he certainly doesn't play the same kinds of feelings. Mm. But it's the fact that he was going very deep into how does you know, the creating the feeling mm-hmm. that um, that I think is the connection. Cool. Thank you so much for that insight. That's um, really interesting. And I want to ask you now, so you've talked about your mentors and what's shaped you, and I want to ask you um, about your role as an educator. So um, for myself and for many other musicians in Sydney, you've been such an irreplaceable um mentor and a person who's just I've looked up to you and you've inspired me and you've uh, convinced me to keep going and to to not give up and to have confidence in myself and I'm so grateful to you and I know many other especially young women feel the same way oh Um, thanks Emma no no it's my pleasure and I really mean it and so I mean as in your role as an educator I know you've done a lot of work for young women with the SEMA women's jazz workshops as well as helping the Sirens Big Band to develop their music and obviously also in your roles helping young men and women in um, the University of New South Wales and the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Um, so I think you have a lot of young people that feel really indebted to you. <laughs> and oh, I, I'd love to know like, what you, how you feel about your role as an educator and what you are trying to inspire in this generation of up-and-coming musicians and how you see that role. Well, I mean, hearing you talk there, Emma, I'm really humbled and thank you for that. <laughs> oh, That's my pleasure. so, so great. Yeah. Um, you said it, actually. I want people to um, find confidence in themselves and um, I want to help them figure out how to answer the questions for themselves. <laughs> so I think, you know, the questions that each of us faces are different. Mm-hmm. Because we each uh, have different, um, which have different attractions to different types of music. We have different personalities. We have different abilities. We have different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, all sorts of things. We have different physical attributes. Who knows? It's um, all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff feed into our musical personalities, and they're not one thing. I don't believe they're fixed. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's. I think they. We can be anything we want to be, mm-hmm. and um, so. Um, I think if as an educator I can, number one, be inspiring, I think that's the first thing, you know, to sort of make people think, wow, that is a, something I'd really like to do. Yeah, and I can. And I, <laughs> and I can. That's the one, second yeah. part. That's the second part, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think another, like it's, I think it's also, you know, just on a, on a more practical level, important to give um, advice clearly and to give information clearly, sometimes just passing on like a key piece of information. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's very important. 
you know, to give knowledge, to pass on whatever knowledge you mm-hmm. can um, in a clear and coherent fashion, which is not always as easy as it sounds. Um, no, I, I think it's actually quite a rare teacher who really knows how to do that. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, not rare, but I mean, it, yeah, like you said, it's difficult. And yeah. there are a lot of <clears throat> teachers who struggle, I think. Yeah. You're not one of them. <laughs> uh, well, judging what is, you know, what you want to pass on as well because mm-hmm. um, sometimes the student will think they want to know a certain thing and you might think, well, yeah, that's important, but actually they need to take care of this right? or they need to take care of this as well as that. Mm-hmm. So sort of trying to balance um, what view you can see of their they're playing as well. I think you mentioned a really good one as well, you know, not giving up because I think, you know, our cultural context doesn't give a lot of um, enough importance to the value of um, artistic practice for its own sake. Of course, yeah. And if for students it can be very discouraging, well, not just for students, for everybody, mm. um, to think because it it may be difficult to make a living. So um, I think if instilling the, the value of the practice itself, mm. regardless of what career path people are going to take. So, mm. um, you know, we have students at UNSW who are, um, a lot of them are doing double degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're probably not going to be professional musicians, but they're often extremely good musicians. Mm. And I believe deeply that the value of music for them is as significant as it is for you know somebody who's going to have um a career as a concert pianist Mm -hmm. and that that value of music to us as human beings that's um something incredibly precious and belongs to everybody Mm. and that that's um you know that's what we're helping to um nurture and and preserve and grow and develop as 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 teachers and of course as a teacher it's a a, you know a lot of people say it and but I really do believe that you learn more (laughs) than you actually teach right I still find that very much Mm -hmm. so this is a very difficult question yeah and I'm sure there's no perfect answer to it but I, I think a lot of musicians in Sydney which is where we are right now, feel that there is a growing sense of the city being a little bit hostile to um, the arts, in particular, in particular to live music. And I'm wondering if you have any ideas about the best way to approach trying to redress that problem um, and what young people in the, in the music scene should be doing to try and counteract this... Um, yeah, what seems to be a hostility and the fact that there are so many venues that are closing and it seems to be so difficult to keep making live music in this city. Yes. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> I think it's very easy for us all to get very depressed about this. <laughs> but it's a very important question and mm-hmm. one that, that I think it's important. Well, we have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I don't have an answer, as <laughs> as you quite rightly predicted. Um, just today in the paper, um, Albert has. Did you see that he's um, Albert Dadon? Mm-hmm. You know, has um, bought the rights to the basement. Okay. So he's planning on opening a new basement in well, that's Sydney, good. which is good. Okay. <laughs> which is good. That's so a sigh of relief. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So some. So I mean, as some. So. 
I first of all, I don't know if things are worse than they used to be. Right. There's when I sort of look back at the past, there's often this sort of um idea that oh there was a golden age somewhere Mm. you know sometime and in some senses there were Mm. you know or there were different types of work Um, for example working in RSL clubs you Mm. know when I was coming up most musicians had gigs in RSL clubs at least every Friday and Saturday night and a lot of clubs even had music six nights a week and they were you know some of those gigs are still around but not like they used to be and they were incredible musicians you know they would have to do the dinner set you know doing the jazz then they'd um they sight reading was incredible they could back the show you know with no rehearsal no (laughs) mistakes nothing boom doesn't matter what the style of the music is they had to know all the pop music of the day Mm -hmm. and then they would do like um ballroom dancing maybe you know and Mm. having to know the right feels for the dancers and then um yeah just an incredible range of skills you know that the musicians who who were part of that scene have and Mm. yeah unbelievable so um so that kind of slipped away as Mm. a sort of career path for a lot of people Mm. um but that happened quite a while ago I think really I mean people still do it but not Mm. to the extent they used to Another big thing that I saw happen was in the 90s, um, the the change to the poker machine laws. That had Mm. a huge effect in Sydney on live music. So lots of venues that had music just overnight, gone. Um, I played the very last night of the Strawberry Hills Hotel Jazz being there Mm. in the 90s and that, that just closed down with, you know, I can't remember exactly, but it was like a night or a week's notice in Mm. terms of live music. And that was a terribly depressing time Mm. when that happened. Um, On the positive side, and I think, you know, that's what we all really do have to focus on Mm. to try to think, okay, what is the way out of that? And that's your question. So, I mean, on one level, I think there's lobbying of government because I think the government... um, I don't know why, but I think um, funding to the arts, um, the role of the ABC and mm. those two things mm-hmm. in particular, I think it's atrocious what's what's happened in mm. the last 10 years or so. You know, the ABC used to have much, much, much more um, interest in nurturing um, particularly, well, all sorts of creative music mm. and um I'm not blaming the people who work at the ABC. It's not their fault. They they do an incredible job under a huge amount of pressure. I know yeah. that. And they do remarkable stuff and they still are doing remarkable stuff. But With less and less staff. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. It's appalling. And um, I hope someone from the ABC hears this, someone very high up, and I'm happy to come and talk to you. Mm. It should change. It's wrong. Mm. I think it's wrong. Um, and I also think that then the cuts to government funding have been um, really bad and have had a very negative impact. Um, So um, those, hopefully those things will reverse Mm -hmm. and and that can help. I think the changing media landscape is also a big factor and what you're doing, Emma, is really important. You know, oh, us doing you. this podcast, <laughs> that's where the hope lies, mm, I think. I hope so. <laughs> totally, Emma, because mm. the mainstream media um, 
are you know not supporting arts and culture the way they should be Mm. Um, so but fortunately the landscape has changed and these kinds of things are much more possible and much more approachable Mm. for you know a dedicated and interested person Um, so that's a big area of hope I reckon Um, another area when I first started out the Keys Music Association were active in Sydney and they were hugely inspirational to me and they sort of took me in and gave me opportunities to play. That was the first, to my knowledge, um, sort of musician-run organisation that existed to apply for funding. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, Jazz Groove came after that. Um, I think there's scope for young musicians to... um, I don't know whether whether there's... A need for a new organization like that for that young musicians themselves run or just that it's more sort of collective in little groups of people doing things but mm. um, I had a great chat with um, Jack Stoneham not that long ago and he was so fired up about community like and you mm. know like how to how to actually create a good sense of a music community here mm-hmm, in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And I was so inspired talking to him. I wished I had a million dollars that I could just go, <laughs> look here, do it, do it, do it. Yes. Um, because, but that kind of energy, that can really make a difference. Mm. It's not easy and it is discouraging at times. But I think, um, you know, it's possible and, it, and it, people need to keep trying to do it. Mm. Um, and then, of course, in Sydney, we do have the musician-run venues like 505 and Camelot and then also, you know, Foundry where um, – and these venues, um, you know, they they all have their own um, struggles, mm. I think, you know, to survive and and to, to support the kind of music they might want to support. But I think we – um, you know, they deserve huge respect, mm-hmm. the people running those, because um, it's a massive investment of time and money and, um, you know, they actually need more help mm. to do what they're trying to do. And they, you know, when you think, okay, I'm, a, I'm an individual musician and it's tough, you know, but if you're trying to run a venue, how much tougher is that? Yeah, there's so many people that you're responsible for. That's and, right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I think it's incredible that that people people mm. would take that on, mm. and um, and it's... hopefully more people, more and more people will. And mm. um, yeah, so it's not easy, but but I think it's um, I think it's possible. I definitely believe <laughs> it's possible to change. So I'm, what I'm hearing is like a call for a more communal effort and a sense of um, musicians coming together to try and solve the problems that face us in this particular day and age. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's all we can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think um, we need to we need to help each other. Because we can't depend on the help from outside. No, yeah, um, oh, absolutely. And you know, especially because things change so quickly, like you said, in the media landscape is yeah. for one thing, yeah. yeah. So on the on the subject of community in particular, particularly the Australian music community, I'm wondering, there's obviously no single answer to this question, but what do you think makes 
the Australian music community and Australian musicians unique? Because you've spent so much time studying with people from all over the world. Is there something about an Australian jazz musician, for example, that you think is um is special or different? Um, <clears throat> so I've given this subject quite a lot of thought. Um, and my feeling is that we should reserve the term Australian music for Indigenous music. Mm-hmm. Um, what the rest of us do is we're Australian people playing music, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. And that's brilliant and Australia needs people playing music sure and the music we play will be um, will be unique as is all music mm. and yeah I think the temptation to try to say that all Australian music is one thing or another or yeah. all Australian jazz is one thing or another I, I'm very resistant to that because I think the whole one of the most beautiful things about jazz is that it's it allows for the expression of the individual yes. and it allows for the unique expression of a group of individuals together. Yes. Um, I like Andrew Robson's phrase in his that he used in his PhD, speaks about affinity clusters. Um, <laughs> they sound a bit like biscuits. But, um, you know, With so... <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. But I think it's a lovely way to put it, you know, where a group of musicians will... They sort of have similar interests maybe or just to sim- they get on well together or so, you know, say he and James Greening, mm. um, he and Paul Cutlin and then so they become a little unit and then mm. they sort of branch out and they overlap with units in other ensembles like so for him, Jackie Ozarski's band say, um, and um, um so those, yeah, those sort of affinity clusters, I mean, we could sort of build a map around Australia yeah. of all of those groups and then you'd start to get this kind of, oh, there's a bit of orange over here and it's a bit bluer here and uh-huh. these ones are a bit radical and these ones are very beboppy and these uh-huh. ones, well, they kind of do the bit of Indian influence and there's these ones kind of growing out of Simon Barker and these ones are sort of growing out of Judy Bailey and these ones are Andrew mm. Keller, you know. And so the, but the web is so complex and beautiful. And the term Australian musician means nothing really in that because it's so diverse and so yeah. individual. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I, I feel quite strongly about preserving that complexity of it. Yeah, even. I think I agree and I, I actually <clears throat> I'm glad you said that because I do regret the way that I asked that question. And in the future, I think I'll, I'll be careful not to just kind of use such a blanket term to describe such a diverse range of individuals. You know, I think you're absolutely right. I think. <laughs> it's we, we all get um, we all have to think about it, though, because especially from the marketing point of view, we often get asked it. And oh, yeah. People have assumptions about you. Yeah. Australia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, you're Australian. You must be super relaxed about everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like swimming. Yeah. And I do live near the beach. There you go. You the stereotype completely. Yeah. Um, I have two more questions for you. Um, unless there is anything that you'd like to sure. talk about that I haven't already asked. But um, I want to ask you what your peak experiences playing music in your career have been and what was it that comprised those experiences? Depth <laughs> and transcendence. Mm. You've thought about this. Um, yeah, I thought about it. I did a gig 
um, last week and I, you'd sent me these questions and I was thinking, gosh, that's a hard one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great, Emma. It's fantastic. And <laughs> that's what I realised. And um, it's those times when you've really, like, and often it's collective, you know, and who can say why sometimes that happens? Mm. And you want it to happen all the time. Yes. Maybe for some people it does. Mm. I don't know. Down those people. Down them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you have to, and it's, yeah, but that's, that's it. I think for me is mm-hmm. like when it's um, when the somehow the music has really gone deep mm-hmm. and no, there's been no thinking about it. It's totally in the moment. It's mm-hmm. totally everyone feeling on the same wavelength. And um, so I've been fortunate to have some of those experiences. The first one that I remember, I remember them as a listener before being a player. But as a player, I remember having that experience on the very first women and children first tour I did. So mm-hmm. my first, so that was my first sort of band under my own leadership. Really, I had had a group with Jeremy Sawkins before that, but um, and the lineup was Tony Buck on drums, Indra Lesmana on piano, and Steve Elphick on bass. Mm-hmm. We did a little tour, and um, some of those gigs, yeah, it was just mind-blowing. They were a phenomenal rhythm section. Mm. I think I was still at the con then. I was maybe in my second year at the con. And, um, um, yeah, I just, you know, I entered that mm-hmm. transcendent space mm-hmm. quite a lot with that rhythm section. They were wasn't wasn't me they were just so phenomenal they sort of took me there and they opened this door and I went (laughs) yeah so that was um that was my first memory of experiencing that um and then yeah like I say last week playing with the Catholics it happened um and I found as I get older um the bands that I've been in for a long time like the Catholics or 10-part invention my trio um things just get better (laughs) it's so good (laughs) like I mean sometimes physically things are harder because your body does um deteriorate (laughs) sorry I wish I could say it didn't but even for your best efforts it does um but your actual ability to Maybe it's relaxation, it's oh. knowledge of, it's always knowledge of the material, knowledge of the people you're playing with, you know, um, all, all that preparation I think really counts for a lot. Mm. But um, but it's that ability then to just breathe and be in the moment together in the experience mm. of making the music magic. <laughs> it's just magic. So speaking of things getting better and more peak experiences for the future, I hope, what do you have coming up in your um, composition and your performance calendar? <laughs> well, my next big gig is pretty exciting. I'm doing a duo with Paul Grabowski mm-hmm. um, at the Kangaroo Valley Arts Festival. Um, and Paul, as I mentioned earlier, he's someone who has been an important mentor to me. Um, I was lucky to be in the Australian Art Orchestra for... Um, I don't know quite how long, um, but, you know, a significant period. And um, Paul 
Paul's a phenomenal improviser. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm really um, – um, that's what I'm thinking about a lot at the moment in terms of playing and thinking how we might approach that. Um, and um, then – so as I was saying earlier, I've just completed a whole – four pieces for Koto Ensemble, two of them I'm playing in as well. Um, and that's happening at the end of May with at UNSW with mm-hmm. Satsuki's Satsuki Odomura Koto Ensemble and um, Kazue Sen- um, Sawai, who is Satsuki's um, sensei or teacher from Japan, is coming to play at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some also some guest Koto players from other parts of Asia. So it's really incredible. Um, so... That's I'm preparing for that. I've just like I said, I've just finished the, all the composition, but I'm just fine tuning it. Mm-hmm. Then um, a really really exciting project, which of course you've been a um, huge contributor to in the preparation, is um, the Sirens um, collaboration, Bridge of Dreams, with Shubham Mudgal and Anish Pradhan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've co-written seventy minutes of music with them. Um, last year we went and recorded the Indian musicians' um, material in Mumbai and in um, a month or so we're recording the sirens' um, parts. So that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be incredible. It's just mind-blowing, actually. The musical side of this um, is I'm so happy with it mm-hmm. and I just can't wait now for the whole thing to sort of come together and we've been it's one of the because the big projects taken a long time to pull it all together but those sorts of things always do totally (laughs) do and then then at the other end of the spectrum i've been working on trio music with um brett and toby so we did a day of recording um two weeks ago and i'm just sort of digesting that and going to write some more material for that um and i'm going to europe in um, June, July, I'm going to do some trio gigs over there. And I also, last <laughs> year, um, I think you'd left by then, but um, when Silke Eberhard was here, yeah, she's a German yes, saxophonist um, who I played with, with Andrea Keller and um, Steve Olfick and James Waples. And I got on great with, that, with um, Silke mm-hmm. and... Um, we um, recorded an improvised duo saxophone album cool. and I'm going to launch that with her in Berlin Fantastic. in June. Um, so that'll be good. And then later in the year I'm doing in the continuing on in the piano duo vein, I'm going to do a concert with Andrea Keller, just sax and piano. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. I just love Andrea's music and, um, yeah, have have um, become really good friends with her. So that'll be our first duo gig together, which would be amazing. Well, I hope you get some sleep in 2018. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Emma. That's all so fantastic. I can't wait to hear all this music. Um, This is Sandy Evans. Thank you so much for being on Stuff You Can't Say with Jazz Piano, and I hope we can have another conversation sometime soon. Thank you, Emma, and all the very best to you with your extraordinary musical endeavours. Thank you so much, Sandy.
takatum, 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 tadum, 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 dum, dum, dum. This is an excerpt from the album Cosmic Waves, which is a collaboration between Sandy and the South Indian ensemble Sruti Layal. The album also features Australian jazz musicians Alastair Spence, Brett Hurst, and James Greening. Thank you for listening to Stuff You Can't Say with Jazz Piano. Just a reminder that you can donate to this podcast by heading to patreon.com slash Emma Grace Stevenson.